brought to us by Mr. Art Williams. It's entitled, Thanksgiving Past, Present, and Future. Thank you, Matthew. Thanksgiving past, present, and future. Many reasons for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving as an attitude that we have as an individual or a person. And then there's Thanksgiving as an official holiday, if you will, from the culture or society or nation that we live in. Some of the reasons are physical for having an attitude of thanksgiving or an official holiday. Others are spiritual. But all of them are generally found to be inherently related to circumstances. <clears throat> Many countries around the world have uh, holidays in, in their cultures, and like I mentioned already, for various, for various reasons. But I'm going to be sticking with uh, America and some other world events and work into the spiritual aspect of it. I can get all my papers right here. The uh, Thanksgiving in America may be one of the most beloved national holidays. I know for me personally it ha always has been. But its history is somewhat all over the place and somewhat nebulous and a little bit detailed and fragmented. Uh, generally, it's recognized that the first Thanksgiving feast, physically speaking, here in America, was the Plymouth Colony settlers and the Wampanaga Indians in November of 1621. <clears throat> the best account that we have is a letter from an English settler by the name of Edward Winslow. He never mentions the word Thanksgiving, but he tells of a week-long harvest celebration that included a celebration with an Indian king and tribesmen. I've got a copy of that letter. It's in the National Archives and in museums. And it's interesting to note and to read through his letter because it shows what he was thankful for. And it illustrates also perhaps, perhaps a deficiency in our culture perhaps uh, things that we take for granted. And perhaps it would dispel some of the preconceived attitudes that we might have from things that we hear that are not authoritatively about those times and circumstances. In his letter, Edward Winslow, 11 December 1621, Loving an old friend, although I received no letter from you by this ship, because the ship just landed, yet for as much as I know you expect the performance of my, of my promise, which was to write to you truly and faithfully of all things, I have therefore at this time sent unto you accordingly, referring you for further satisfaction to our more larger relations. You shall understand that at this little time there are a few of us have been here, and we have built seven dwelling houses and four for the plantations and have preparation for diverse others. We may not think of it, but they are coming on a ship to a foreign strange land, and when they get here, they have to build houses to live in. And they don't go out to Lowe's or Home Depot to buy the lumber. They have to 
cut the trees down. They have to then process those tree trunks and then set them in place and probably chisel and change their form to get them to fit together snugly. And he goes on, we set the last spring some 20 acres of Indian corn. That brings an interesting question because how did they plow? Did they bother to plow it? Because they didn't take any animals with them. Were they able to just plant the seed on top of the ground? We take these things for granted. And we have made preparations for diverse others. We set last spring some 20 acres of Indian corn and sowed some six acres of barley and peas. And according to the manner of the Indians, we manured the grounds with our herring and shads, which we have in great abundance, and take with great ease at our outdoors. Our corn did prove well, God be praised. We had a good increase in Indian corn, and our barley was okay, but our peas are not worth gathering, for they, we fear that we sowed them too late, and they came up very well and blossomed, but the sun parched them. <clears throat> But our harvest has been gotten in, and our governor sent forth four men on following, so that we might have a more special manner rejoicing together. After we had gathered the fruit of our labors, they killed many fowl, and with a little help besides, served the company for almost a week. At which time, among other recreation, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians came among us, and among the rest of their, the, the rest, there came their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to our plantation. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. We have found the Indians very faithful to their covenant of peace with us, very loving and ready to pleasure us. We often go with them, and they come to us, and some of us have been 50 miles by land into the country with them. The occasions and relations whereof you shall understand by our general and more full, full declaration of such things as are worth the noting. It has pleased God so to possess the Indians with a fear of us and a love of us, that not only the greatest king among them called Massusoet, but also the princes and the people round about us have either made suit unto us or been glad of any occasion to make peace with us so that the seven of them at once have sent their messengers to us. He's talking about the other Indian tribes. Sending seven messengers at one time to them. And he goes on to say, has also together with the former yielded willingly to be under protection and subject of our sovereign Lord King James, so that now there is great peace among all of the Indians themselves, which was not formerly, neither would have been, but for us. In other words, they facilitated the peace among the Indian tribes as a result of them making a relationship with just one of the tribes and what that relationship was. For we and our parts walk as peaceably and safely in the woods as in the highways in England. We entertain them familiarly in our houses, and they as friendly bestowing their venison on us. There are people without any religion or knowledge of any god, yet they're very trusty, 
quick of apprehension, ripe-witted, and just. He goes on to say, I, re I remember, I never in my life remember a more seasonable year than we have enjoyed here. But men might live as contented here as in any other part of the world. For fish, fowl, we have great abundance. All the springtime, the earth sent forth natural, very good herbs, grapes, white and red, very sweet and strong, strawberries, gooseberries, raspberries, plums of three different sorts, black and red, abundance of roses, white, red, and dam damask. I don't know what that color is. <clears throat> but very sweet indeed. The country wants only industrious men to employ for it would grieve your hearts if, as I, you had seen so many miles together by goodly rivers uninhabited, and with all to consider those parts of the world wherein you live, to be greatly burdened with the abundance of the people. These things I thought good to let you understand, being the truth of things as near as I could experimentally take knowledge of, and that you might, on our behalf, give God thanks who has dwelt so favorably with us. So they did very well, and they weren't starving or anything. They had plenty to eat. They didn't have any problem with the native peoples. And he, he closes his letter because he's expecting his friend to arrive on the next ship. Now, because I expect you're coming on to us with others of our friends whose company we much desire, I thought it good to advise you of a few things. So he goes on to advise them of the things that they need to be considered <coughs> considering bringing with them that they might need. And he closes, I forbear further to write for the present, hoping to see you by the next return. So I take my leave, commending you to the Lord for the safe conduct unto us, resting in him, Plymouth in New England, this 11th of December, 1621. Your loving friend, E.W. He had many things to be thankful for, and it's interesting because just about all of what he mentioned had to do with two basic needs, survival and security. America's first call for a national day of Thanksgiving to celebrate was a victory over the British. Sorry, Mark. Sorry, Matthew. At the Battle of Saratoga. Battle, Saratoga was a battle that took place during the Revolutionary War. Um, <clears throat> most, I don't think most history books even address it too much. I'm very well familiar with it being from the Northeast. Uh, if I might digress a little bit on history to give you a background of it so you'll have a better appreciation of just what it was about. The British decided that the main home of the rebels was in the north, and so they decided to do something about it. And they designed a grand strategy of a three-pronged military attack. One leg was to come up from New York City and come up the Hudson River, and that was by General Howe. The other leg was come down south from Montreal, down the Champagne River Valley, and both of them were to meet at Albany, New York. There was a third leg that would start on the eastern side of Lake Ontario at Oswego, New York, and come in from the west, it would seize or at least uh, surround Fort Stanwix and prevent them from interfering. And then they would proceed on down the Mohawk River Valley to Albany. 
all three forces would converge at Albany. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I just might digress to World War II, how, how Hitler felt he had to destroy the British Air Force before he could invade. And he was very close to doing that, maybe within just weeks of doing it. And some of his planes got off course and they bombed London. As a result of that, Winston Churchill got his fur on his neck up and he decided to bomb Berlin, which he did. And Hitler got so enraged, he decided, I'm not going to bomb their airports and their air forces anymore. I'm going to bomb their cities. And so he did that. And the result was, guess what? The RAF, Royal Air Force, had a chance to replenish itself, revive itself. And in the end, Hitler gave up saying, we can't defeat them in the air. We can't invade them. And he was that close to being successful. And I often wonder if buttons being pushed like that are pushed from a supreme being. Same thing here with the Battle of Saratoga. General Burgoyne, coming down from the north, he was, ha has he was haggled from the beginning with guerrilla attacks. And he had a real rough going because there weren't any roads up there. He had to come through the forest. And if you ever travel that area, you can be out in the middle of the forest and you you're walking along, and all of a sudden you see a, uh, a historical marker that said, Battle of so-and-so happened here. And this is like, here? And you're walking out on this desolate trail in the middle of nowhere, and you're surrounded by trees and fallen limbs and maybe a little brook or water. You really wonder how they ever got through there. But anyway, he's fighting us on way, his way down on the Albany. Very St. Ledger is coming in from the west. He gets to Fort Stanwix. He surrounds the fort. You can't take it, so he surrounds it and puts it under siege and continues to the east. At that time, his messenger is telling him that there's a force of 800 rebels coming up to meet him. So they lay an ambush for, those 800, for, for the 800, and they, they do a pretty good job of uh, eliminating them. Um, General Herkimer, who led the rebels, was shot in the leg and later had his, amp his leg amputated and he died because the operation didn't go very well. Um, but they did stop uh, the Indians in the, in the British from coming down the lake. And the way they did it was back at the fort. Apparently, they did not leave enough men at the fort to maintain the siege. The men inside the fort broke out of the siege went over to the Indians' camp. And how they knew where the Indian camp was, I don't know. But they went to the Indian camp, and they just demolished it, and they took everything they could find. They took all the food, all the blankets, anything that would be valuable to them back in the fort for over the winter. Meanwhile, a, a runner went from the camp to the battlefield and told the Indians what was happening. And a, over 50% of the combatants on the side of the British were Indian. They withdrew and went back to save their, their home base. When they got there, of course, it was too late. At that point in time, they, didn't want to, they weren't sure that they wanted to continue the battle because they had to get in all their stores now for the winter or they either had to take it from the, back from the fort. Barry St. Ledger declares victory on the battlefield and, and promptly retreats back to Oswego. Now, poor General Burgoyne coming down from the north, he doesn't know what happened with Barry St. Ledger. And he doesn't know what happened with General Howe. I hadn't mentioned General Howe, who's supposed to come up from New York City and come up to Hudson. He never left. No, no. He had a better idea. I'm going to go and attack the rebels down at their capital, down in Philadelphia. So he goes down to Philadelphia, and he beats George Washington, takes over Philadelphia, 
And he's sitting there for several weeks after weeks after weeks, and then he finally, this accomplished nothing. I'm going back to New York City. He goes back to New York City, and I'm not sure if they booted him out of the service or what. But he's never heard of again. He left the military. The thing was, what changed Howell's mind that he didn't follow through? Was it his pride, his arrogance? Again, was that some kind of an influence from a supreme being that resulted in rebels winning the battle at Saratoga because what happened in the end, General Burgoyne keeps fighting and fighting and fighting, not knowing the other two legs are never going to come. He gets himself down to Saratoga and he had about 6,000 men on his side. The rebels, when they started, had 6,000 and by the time they got to the second battle of Saratoga, they had 15,000. After two days of waiting, for Howell to relieve him and come to his rescue, he surrendered. And that's the Battle of Saratoga in a somewhat revised nutshell. George Washington again called for a, a National Day of Thanksgiving to commemorate to memorate the end of the Revolutionary War and the, and the ratification of the Constitution. And during the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy did likewise. But it wasn't until President Lincoln in 1863 officially got it passed through Congress uh, after many years of lobbying by a lady by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale. Anybody know the name? Sarah Josepha Hale. She wrote a song that everybody in here knows. Mary had a little lamb. She wrote that song and she lobbied President Lincoln for the National Day of Thanksgiving. And that's a little bit of the background of Thanksgiving in our country. I thought that would take about five minutes, not 20. <clears throat> but that was never the first Thanksgiving. It might have been the first Thanksgiving in America, but the actual first Thanksgiving was in an Exodus 23:16, And the Feast of Harvest, the first fruit of your labors, which you have sown in the feast, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, which is what Thanksgiving really was about in our country. When you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, and that's where the beginnings of it really were. And we can continue, and I want to hit on some of the aspects of praise and psalm. Psalm 100, gladness and thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come in before his presence with singing. Know you that the Lord is God, and he who hath made us, and not we ourselves, for we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures through all generations. And if we continue over in Psalm 116. The gratitude of the redeemed. I love the Lord because he is, beginning in verse 1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear unto me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. 
Because that goes to the heart of why we're thankful in our relationship to God, not only the physical blessings, and not only even the spiritual blessings, but the relationship that we have with him. The things that he perhaps tests us with, even puts us through, allows us to suffer, all for our own betterment and improvement. The sorrows of death compass me, verse 3, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called, continuing in verse 4, then I called upon the name of the Lord. I beseeched you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Continuing in verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore, have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take a cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord, now in presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Truly, Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid that has loosed my bonds. I will offer to you sacrifices of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord, now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise you, the Lord. And in ingathering, in Psalm 147, he's talking about the regathering of Israel here, which is in itself kind of interesting. Starting in verse 1. Praise you, the Lord, for it is a good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is fitting. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. He appoints the numbers of the stars, verse 4. He calls them all by their names. He has names for all the stars. He set the names. It's a, which is interesting because the other night I hadn't done this before. I have a, a, a night scope. Uh, it's supposed to be mounted on a rifle, but I don't have it mounted on a rifle. I, I just use it for a, like a monocle. And I decided the other night I was out and... I decided to look up at the stars, and it was a really, really bright star up there. Normally, when you look through a night scope, you don't see any color. But I looked at the star, and it had, it was the brightest star I could see in the sky, and it had these big blooms coming off of it, and they were colored in the night scope, which really amazed me. Some were orange and some were red. I have no idea what star it was. But the other thing I noticed when we look up with our naked eye and we see the stars, we see a lot of stars. You haven't seen nothing until you look at the stars through a night scope. When you look at the stars through a night scope, the entire sky is filled with little white, every half an inch, there's a little white speck up there. It looks like somebody took salt and put all over your plate like that and you're looking at this black plate. It's there everywhere, but you can never see them. But with that night scope, it's really impressive the magnitude of how many of them there are and how little we see with the naked eye. It's, uh, it's, it's really uh, impressive to look at it. In verse 10 of Psalm 147, he delights not in the strength of the horse. 
He takes not pleasure in the legs of a man. Man's legs are usually the strongest part of his body. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Continuing in verse 14, he makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest of the wheat. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. I think it's as far as I'll go on 147, I'd like to go over to Psalm 91, which is, has to do with security. You ever feel insecure? I do on occasion. I have some good reasons to, with uninvited guests showing up at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. The security system goes off and lets me know that they're there, so I try to put the fear of God into them. <clears throat> secret place of security. He who dwells in the secret place, Psalm 91, verse 1, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shade of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. Who to rely upon as a refuge and a fortress. And I will trust him. Surely he shall deliver you from a snare of the fowler and from noise of the pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and with his wings. Shall you trust? His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. Be not afraid of for the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence which walks into darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. Thousands shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, and it shall not come near you. Very strong promises to be thankful for. Perhaps we have seen them in the past. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation. There shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come near thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep you in all of your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands lest thou dash your foot against the stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent. Thou shalt trample under feet because he has set his love upon you. Therefore, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Something what God does for you because you have set yourself to look upon his love and be within the confines of his love. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And we'll go one more psalm here. <clears throat> it's about looking to the future, Messiah's glorious kingdom. We'll look at some other scriptures after Psalm 72 here. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteous 
righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge the people with righteousness and they poor with justice. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor, the people. He shall save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. He shall come down like rain upon, this verse 6, mown grass, like showers that water the earth, in verse 7. In his days shall the righteous flurry an abundance of peace as long as the moon endures. Abundance of peace. We're going to talk about peace a little later. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river unto the ends of the earth. He's always there. He's always involved. He's even when you can't see him, hear him, or perceive him. And that's what's really interesting, especially for me personally, about the military histories. When people who have a winning plan go off course and end up losing. It's, I always think it has to do with his hand being involved. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, looking to the future. And he shall deliver the needy when he cries out, and the poor also, and him that has no helper. He shall spear the poor needy and save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. A double amen at the end of that. In Genesis 15.5, <clears throat> there was a blessing and a promise given to Abraham. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if they'll be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. And continuing in verse 6, Then he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Continuing in Genesis 22.17, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemy. And continuing in Genesis 26, 4, he repeats what he's already said here. I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give unto your seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In the seed of Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the Hebrews give some information regarding the, the faith that they had and the outcome of their faith. Or Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. You would think that perhaps the generations who heard their parents talk about the blessings might walk away from it. But they were well schooled, so they didn't. But having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them 
and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So the pilgrims on Plymouth Rock weren't exactly the first pilgrims, were they? Just my little side point. Do you feel like a pilgrim sometimes? For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country that they came out of, they might have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, and wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Second Peter, verse 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. We have some of the things in our country that are diversions. In, in Edward Winslow's letter, he was speaking of survival needs and security needs. We don't have to go out and worry too much about survival needs or security for the most part. Yes, we have violence in our country. And there's a lot of murders in some of our cities. Most of us probably don't get too involved in them. Sometimes it may close, come close. But generally speaking, we don't have to worry about getting food. We don't have to cut down trees to build our houses. We don't have to hewn the trees into the correct form and fit them together carefully. All of that we take pretty much for granted. And we worry sometimes, well, gee, will I, will I have the latest version of an iPhone or iPad? Or will I, will I be able to get on the internet today to see my latest whatever? We don't have the same focus on those kinds of needs that they did. There will probably be a time in the future when we will have that need. Timothy says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, And know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, boasters proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unthankful. That could become a very critical word for the future church, and that's described in Revelation 3.17. Revelation 3.17 is about the Laodicean church. It says, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knoweth not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. I want to focus on that first part. Because you say, I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing, then you don't have anything to be thankful for, do you? You've got everything you need. Who am I going to thank? For what? Why do people cry out to God for his help, his intervention? Because they're in severe circumstances. Circumstances that perhaps exceed their personal ability to resolve. The one thing we can't allow ourselves to do or our future generations to, is to develop the attitude of having a need of nothing, but focusing on the spiritual aspects and not the physical. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, Paul continues, 
having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You know, on this Thanksgiving Day that we have coming up, a lot of the people in our country have a form of godliness, if you will, a form of Thanksgiving, but they're really focused on Black Friday. How thankful are they really? You know, the, the, probably the most significant thing that happens in, in worldly terms on Thanksgiving Day is that great, the great reduction of the population of turkeys. And I'm not trying to be funny, but, <laughs> you know, um, in a lot of people, it, it's, a, it's a holiday, but it certainly isn't in the pure meaning of Thanksgiving. Perhaps is just a form. In Philippians 4, verse 6, be careful, it says, that word careful is better translated anxious. Be anxious for nothing. That's hard to do in this world. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So part of overcoming anxiety is prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. And the result of that is in the next verse, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. We try to battle anxiety, perhaps, with the power of our own will. And there are various ways that our society provides for us in that and through medications and psychological help. And I'm not against psychology at all. I am somewhat of a fan of psychology if it's properly oriented and administered. But here we see prayer and supplication with thanksgiving are key to having the peace of God. And probably I feel personally I come up short on that. We had a, an event here just the past three weeks have been traumatic, at least for me. There's not, nothing really earth-shattering earth or something that is anywhere is like a tribulation or something, but it was hard for me to deal with. I had to put my kitty cat down. And within a few days of that, we had the freezing 23-degree weather with rain and snow, and the cat that somebody had dropped off at our house, which I had not had the ability to befriend yet. She wouldn't let me get within more than three feet of her. I was not able to get her to use a house that I made for her that had heat in it, and she wouldn't go in the garage where there was heat. And she froze to death that night. She's dead. She's dead because of her own fear, because mankind threw her into a position that she was not able to handle. And then, the transmission on the car blows up. So, you know, in, in a matter of a week or 10 days, I, I had a reason for a prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and asking for the peace of God. But the thing that bothered me the most was the death of the kitty cat that I could not save, particularly because I found out later on, and she would hide under our car by the wheel, and I could get my hand within about six inches of her. But what I didn't know, which I found out subsequently, when a cat does that, now you've got to take your chances. You can put your hand out there. She might bite it. She might scratch it. But then again, the other part of that is because she feels secure where she is at, she may just let you pet her. 
And if you can pet her, and you can pet her for a little bit of time, you will be able to pick her up. Had I known that, and if she would have let me, I could have saved her life. That gets me. That gets me here. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be thankful. Be thankful from the heart. Not only inform. Reviewing the things that he's done for you in the past, what he's doing for you right now, and what he's going to be doing for you in the future. And make it be from the heart, not just inform.